Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host, David Thompson. Hello, and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, David Thompson, National Marketing and Sales Director for Stein Seed Company. We've got another great episode lined up with special guests, expert insights, and discussion on everything you need to know about maximizing yield potential. Today, we welcome back Mike Tweedy to the show. Mike is the Vice President and Head of Sales for Pattern Ag. Thanks for joining us again, Mike. Thank you for the invitation. Glad to be back. So a few months back, Mike joined us on the show to discuss Pattern Ag's Advanced Soil Analysis Program and how the system can help growers optimize their crop protection and their fertility plans. And today, Mike is here to share with us some of the in-depth findings from their 2022 data analysis and talk in more depth about their partnership with Stein. So let's get started. So, Mike, you've been a guest on our show before, but uh, just for all of our listeners, for a bit of review, tell us a little bit about Pattern Ag and, and the service that the company provides. Yeah, we take a, a very deep look at the soil biology, and we uh, turn those insights into recommendations that growers can use, Stein growers can use to maximize the yield on their farms. We look at, a, on a field-level basis, the biology that determines the bad stuff and the good stuff. So the bad stuff would be things like corn rootworm, cyst nematode, fusarium, and other diseases. And then we look at things like the good stuff, like mycorrhizal fungi, anaerobic bacteria, um, and phosphorus solubility. So we take those insights and we can provide recommendations to growers to make management practices and inform, most importantly, seed selection decisions, seed treatment, and fungicide applications. Yeah, and, and you know, I know that there are other things out there for doing soil testing and, you know, mainly fertility, but a lot of other things. But I think, you know, Pattern Ag takes a, a really different approach in how they look at the soil biology and soil analysis. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what the different factor is that you guys bring to the table? Yeah, when it really boils down to predictive agronomy. That's what we, uh, that is our value proposition is we're looking forward instead of looking backward. Most of the diagnostic tools and scouting observations are done during the season and are retrospective on what happened. So when tissue samples and things get sent off to labs, then you can determine, well, what was the disease that caused this damage that occurred in the field? We take a very different look at or different view of it. We use big data. And when I say big data, I mean, to date, we have the largest genomic uh, platform, uh, metagenomic database in the world at about 200 billion DNA reads. And to put that into perspective, when you get a regular soil test back, that's about 10 data points. So our database is 200 billion right now. And what we do is we mine that data to look for those specific pathogens in the field prior to planting season. So we pull the samples in the fall. We turn the analysis back around to the grower so that and to the Stein seed rep so that they can make the right decision on what to plant in those fields. And what that does, what predictive agronomy does, is it takes the guesswork out of, do I have this disease? Do I have corn rootworm? Do I have SDS? And then it tells you whether you have those because we're looking at the field on a genomic level, which is very different than anything else that's being done today. 
Yeah, so you're taking that soil sample and being able to identify what existed in that soil previously and using that to predict what the future outcome may be uh, based on what you're seeing in the soil. Yes, and we're having tremendous results this year from even from last year for growers who used it had very large yield impacts on uh, their soybeans. That, uh, last year we had one grower, for example, up in South Dakota who last year learned that he had low boron levels. Um, he had uh, high levels of sudden death syndrome and a few other diseases, which just informed a few changes in, in the way that he treated that. You know, for example, he chose varieties that were very resistant to SDS. He chose fungicide seed packages that would protect that soybean seed. And then he applied boron three times during the year. The best yield that he had ever had on that field over a five-year period for soybeans was 62 bushels. This year, he averaged 82 bushels just by making those changes from knowing in advance what was the threat in those fields. So we started, as a company, Steinseed, we started doing a pilot program with you folks last year. So we had a handful of customers who utilized the offer and the program. And then uh, this year, of course, we have several, uh, many more customers that are signing up with Pattern Ag. But one of the reasons I wanted to have you back on the show was we talked about, you know, this would be a good time to talk about some of the things from the 2022 season data analysis. So here we are, and you've kind of got some data compiled and wondering what kind of findings you've got from 2022 that that are really interesting that growers might want to, you know, hear about and things that might help them understand what Pattern Ag can deliver. Yeah, and we're going to, at the end of January, we'll be releasing our 2023 predictive agronomy report, which is compiling all of our data in our data set to look at really compelling trends that we're seeing for the upcoming season. And so what I'm going to do today is talk a little bit about some of those, uh, a few of those compelling findings. I'd like to really focus on things that people don't normally think about before planting, but that have a tremendous impact on that yield. And so when we look at, you know, upcoming corn soybean planting season, based upon our current analysis, we're seeing that root rots like pythium, fusarium, white mold, and SDS, we're seeing very strong linkage in the areas that had really high April, spring uh, moisture and anaerobic conditions. So if you are a grower in the Midwest and in April was really, really wet, what you can expect in the upcoming season are elevated levels or pressures of those seedling and root rot diseases. And so you really need to take a look at what are the, you know, what are the packages that can be used by uh, Stein seeds to protect that soybean seed going into that season. So in that case, you're saying that a primary predictor of those kind of root rots is really kind of set early on in the season. I yeah. mean, if you have if you have a really wet spring, you have a very high incidence or high potential for these root rots to to cause problems later in the year. Even though later in the year it may be, you may get turned dry. It may not be you know wet at that time, but that happens early on in the season, and that kind of die is cast at that point. Yeah, the water holding capacity and the uh, amount of moisture that you're getting early in the season is a strong predictor of uh, we've got very strong linkage between that pathogen level in those fields in the fall, which means if that inoculum is there in the fall when we test, it's going to be there in the spring and you're going to be facing it. So something that happened a year ago is going to have an impact on uh, in terms of soil biology of what's going to happen in the upcoming season or is a good predictor of that. 
Likewise, in, we had, in the areas where we had really dry conditions, we're seeing high levels of gibberella stalk rot uh, going into the next season. So if you're planting corn in areas that were very dry this year, there's a really good probability that you're going to have gibberella stalk rot. So you're going to want to look at those hybrids that you're planting and make sure that they, they've got good resistance to that. So yeah, in, in this case, what we're seeing is we can draw a direct line between where, where things were at the end of the season in 2022 and try to help the growers make some sort of determinations on what they do for 2023. And like you said, you can't control everything, you know, you can't control, you know, you can do drainage, you can do some tiling, but at the same time, tight soil is tight soil, but at least you know what you're getting into, right? If you have this sort of analysis in front of you, you can make some determinations. Like you said, maybe it's a seed treatment or maybe it's something else you can do to try to mitigate those circumstances. Certainly it's going to impact your variety selection, your hybrid selection, you know, when it comes to corn rootworm, your trait selection, things like that. But yes, it is, it is data that is very high predictor. The only thing that we cannot predict right now is the actual expression, but we will be there very soon. So we're going to look forward then on what the weather patterns are going to be in the upcoming planting season. And then we'll be able to tell you, we'll be able to inform on the probability of expression. Yeah. So what other kind of things have you found in your analysis from last season? Yeah, there's a surprising high level across the Midwest of low phosphorus solubilization. So when I say that, what we're doing is we're looking at the genetic pathways in that soil sample that come in. We're looking for very specific genetic pathways that break down rock phosphorus, okay? That's really, really important because, um, you know, even phosphorus mining companies know that they've only got about 60 years left of phosphorus that they can mine and provide. So being able to find out where there is low phosphorus solubilization going on will inform on a biological product that they can use to then free up that phosphorus. So in, in essence, you're mining the phosphorus that's already in your soil. And so was really surprised at the, at the number of fields that we're seeing with low phosphorus solubilization and the fact that they could find a good product, um, you know, a good biological product that could break up or that could add that genetic pathway into that soil so that they can mine the phosphorus that's in their soil. It also probably means it's very highly likely that phosphorus is being overapplied based on the fact that it is, they've got enough phosphorus there, it's just not available because the genetic pathways that exist that break it down are not there. So we see, you know, we're, we're seeing that. And then, you know, secondly, we're seeing a very strong linkage between high anaerobic conditions and let me describe anaerobic conditions. So we're specifically looking for bacteria that exist in anaerobic environments that suppress things like mycorrhizal fungi, which are beneficial to the plant. It, you know, it makes the plant healthier and other healthy bacteria that exist in that soil. So when we see anaerobic conditions, we're seeing very low levels of mycorrhizal fungi and we're seeing high denitrification potential, which means that if you do have that, you're going to want to put on a nitrogen stabilizer. Yeah, and so so in the case of anaerobic, again, whether it's tight soils or waterlogged soils, if they know they are seeing that, then this would tell us that, that they need to take steps to try to mitigate the impact that has on fungi or 
in the case of nitrogen, make sure they're applying nitrogen in a timely fashion so it can be utilized by the plant. Yeah, and these are the great conversations that we have with growers because they've never seen this kind of data before and it begins to answer the questions of, you know, what's happening? Why is my top end yield being, you know, locked in at 150 bushels when I should be doing 200 bushels? And so it begins to answer those questions. But, you know, being able to inform on those kind of management practice changes of, you know, if you've got an anaerobic uh, environment, that either means you have compaction or you've got a lot of water holding, you know, that's going on in that field or you've got a very wet environment. And so, you know, if it's compaction, then you're going to want to break up that compaction. If it's water, you know, if it's water in there, then you're going to want to do something to tile it or just know that you're going to be kind of limited in that field. But it is a direct correlation that we're seeing in those two things. Well, even on solubility of phosphorus, you know, that that seems like that would be an aha moment for a grower who may be applying according to a prescriptive service that they've got that says, hey, I think we need to have more phosphorus. Well, it's not, the answer isn't more phosphorus, it's make the phosphorus you have more available yeah, uh, to I mean, the plant. Make the, make the soil work for you. Get it, you know, energize it, put the right things back into the soil that are going to break or that, that are going to make that phosphorus available. So I know the, the offer that we have right now that we're putting for our customers who choose to exercise it are, uh, in, includes some predictive analysis on things like corn rootworm and SCN and, and sudden death syndrome. And I think sudden death syndrome is certainly one of the more challenging ones for various reasons. I know, what are you finding with that in some of your studies? Yeah, we've so we've done two large-scale commercial research efforts this year. One is on SDS. So we looked at fields across the Midwest, and we took particular interest in this because you know, SDS accounts for about $4.5 billion estimated loss to growers in economic loss. It, that's why it's just known as the silent yield robber. And it is so often misdiagnosed and, and um, you know, blamed on other things that are going on in that field. So we did a, we did a commercial study with a um, these were with growers that agreed to uh, to participate with us and we were looking at what we did is we went out we tested those fields prior to planting we knew which fields had SDS and what kind of pressure that was in them and so we could measure that pressure across that entire field we used our same sampling protocol that we use on commercial fields, which is 10-acre grids with uh, 12 to 14 cores being pulled across those 10 acres, so very dense. And then that tells us, you know, that informs us if that inoculum is there, it's there. We then deployed agronomy scouts, not employed by Pattern Ag, but uh, outside contractors, um, to go out and scout those fields for the presence and the expression of SDS. So they used a visual injury scale of one to three, so three would be equal to full uh, leaf necrosis. Uh, if that's occurring, then you're, you're probably 50% or greater yield loss in those fields. Those leaf tissue samples were then sent to Iowa State University PIDC for diagnosis so that we could compare what the actual problem was in the plant to what they scouted and, and said was the problem that in the field. The result of that was that the agronomy scouts reported visual SDS expression on 52% of the fields. However, those fields, those 52% were misdiagnosed. They did not have SDS. The PIDC lab confirmed the misdiagnosis, and most often it was misdiagnosed as frog eye leaf spot, brown stem rot, 
potassium deficiency, charcoal rot, herbicide injury, white mold, and, and some other uh, diseases. And, you know, that is the main part of the problem because it is such a sneaky disease that it can be misdiagnosed with something else. We looked at our field model, and our field model was 93% accurate, okay? So that is the gold standard for being able to identify sudden death syndrome. The sudden death syndrome is far undertreated compared to the amount of disease inoculum that we see out there at the medium and high levels. And, I, and I'm really concerned about the areas that have low anaerobic or, or high anaerobic activity, you know, such as high water ponding areas, high moisture from the spring. Those are going to be great, greatly impacted in this coming season. So, you know, if you want to have your field still tested there uh, before planting, we can do that. And we can tell you whether you have moderate to high levels of SDS. And uh, we're certainly going to be doing that for the Stein customers participating in this program this year. Uh, they'll be able to see whether they have it and if they need, uh, you know, if they need a treatment to protect against it. So kind of an interesting convergence there. You have, you know, where through your analysis, you can have really good predictability of where SDS may be an issue, you mm-hmm. know, based on the soil analysis that you have. And then ultimately, what happens in those areas that probably predisposes that to SDS also predisposes it to to other pathogens as well. So in some cases, what we think may be SDS may not be, but you know the the analysis probably doesn't lie. You know, it, you can find the the inoculum in there. You know that you're probably going to be dealing with an SDS issue or dealing with frog eye or or whatever. Yeah. You know, what's important is that you can't look at these things in a vacuum. I was at a cyst nematode conference here recently, and we were talking about the importance of cyst nematode. But, you know, in the conversations that are enlightening or where you have those aha moments when we're meeting with growers is, yeah, you have SCN, but you also have SDS. And if you have SCN, that is a vector for entry entry of those other diseases that exist in there. So it's not one to it's two, three, or four things that are going on in that field. Recall, you know, one of the things that we said is that in areas where you've got really tight soils, where the water is being held, or if you have compaction, the likelihood that you're going to have pythium, fusarium, uh, rhizoctonia, white mold, and SDS are all high. Okay, we see a, a very strong linkage between those things. So it's not just a matter of looking at SDS alone. It's looking at these other things that are going to cause yield robbing impact as well. Yeah, and the other thing about that is some of these things probably easier to manage than others. In other words, there's action items you can take. Mm-hmm. Some things, not so much. I mean, things like white mold are, are really, really difficult uh, and SDS mm-hmm. also. But knowing what you have can help inform better decisions, and at least you know going in what you're what you're going to be dealing with. Well, if nothing else, so when you know early in my career, I was a tech service rep, and I used to go out and scout fields and look at disease impacts. It would have been really nice for me to know exactly where I needed to go and look for and scout for those uh, expressions that are occurring to inform on fungicide applications versus you know just hitting certain areas in a field and hope that you guessed right, that you were in the right part of the field and that you saw it at the right time. If I knew that I had the presence and pressure of SDS out there or, you know, something like white mold, I could go out there and look and see where that was going to happen and if it was expressing itself. And and like you said earlier, you know, the hard part is so much of what an agronomist has to do is really post-mortem. I mean, they're a coroner. 
<laughs> if yeah. nothing else. And here we have an opportunity to probably just get some better front-end information that helps inform decisions that hopefully can avoid some of those issues going into the next year. Yeah, the, the whole purpose behind predictive agronomy is to provide the most powerful tool to an agronomist. They already have a series of tools that they can use today, but really those are retrospective and not uh, proactive. We wanted to provide the most powerful proactive tool to an agronomist to inform on the best decisions and what to scout for you know, in the upcoming season, understanding what the impacts of the conditions are in the field prior to planting. Now, refresh my memory. So when a customer comes to you to engage your service, step me through, for the grower, what does that look like? What do they, what do they have to do? Yeah, well, we we, uh, we match a grower up with a, a trusted advisor, which would be a seed dealer, would be an, an agronomist, a crop crop scout, Stein seed rep, and then we want to get their field information. So we want to get their field boundaries uploaded into our system. And then once that field is ready to sample, we can sample really at any time of the year, but the most ideal time is right after harvest so that we can turn those results back around. Uh, we will deploy samplers. If they have their own sampler, they can use theirs, but we uh, we would deploy samplers out there. We test on 10-acre grids. So Every 10 acres, we, as I said before, we take 12 to 14 cores out of that. That gets shipped off to our lab. We run the analysis. If they want nutrient, we can uh, run a Malik test on that. If they want to look at the full 360, then we would run a pressure panel, a performance panel, and then the pro-nutrient panel. Pressure panel is corn rootworm, cyst nematode, sudden death syndrome. Performance panel is all of the other disease pathogens as well as biofertility attributes. And then pro-nutrient is obviously the Malik 3. And that gives them a full 360-degree view of what's happening in that field. So at the point when they decide that they want to participate and take advantage of the service, you know, the lift that they have to provide is really just helping with the mapping part of it. I mean, identifying their fields, hopefully they have shape files or, or at least can give some, you know, information regarding where their fields are and where they're located. And then from there, Pattern Ag kind of takes it from there. Yeah, it's pretty white glove, uh, very low lift. The, the easiest thing for the growers, if we can hook up to their climate field view or my John Deere, we can absorb those zones right into our uh, right into our system. They don't have to do anything. Uh, we can also layer their data, their yield data, on top of our data as well. So by connecting those management systems, they're going to get a full view from planting to anything that they've done on those fields to harvest, as well as layer on top of it what our predictive analysis showed was going to happen during the season. And the beauty about that is that once that data goes into our system, First of all, we don't sell our data. It doesn't go to anybody else. Any data, is once it comes in, is anonymized, so they don't have to worry about anybody getting a hold of their data. But they'll be able to look at historically, over time, how those fields have changed and how they've performed based upon the changes that they've made. And one of the things, you know, from a previous conversation we've had that always fascinates me is this idea of the year-over-year data and the idea being, you know, there may be pests or pathogens that we haven't really fully identified yet. But once that customer starts with their soil sampling, you already have their complete soil biology markup, right? So if we find something down the road, you can go back and analyze that and you know already well, you've had this for three or four years. Yeah, we what we do is we take their biology and we turn it into gigabytes of data that go up into the cloud. So it's there forever. And we'll be constantly adding new things like 
you know, positive soil attributes or, you know, bacteria, as well as new pathogens. Uh, we'll, be at, we'll be turning on a number of new pathogens this year. Our folks in the South will be happy to know that we'll be turning on root knot nematode uh, shortly. But when they test with us and we turn on those algorithms after we have validated that what we're seeing is what we're seeing and it's precise and accurate, we turn that on in our system it automatically backdates past reports. So say you've been doing business with us for five years and you have five years of data, that will automatically populate past reports. And that's what makes our analysis and using metadata a lot different than any other type of analysis. I know you said in, in late January you're going to kind of put out this master report talking about findings. But, you know, if we're talking to a grower today to say, okay, well, what did you learn from the data you have from 2022? What are the key takeaways that, you know, you'd tell a grower that you definitely need to be thinking about based on what you've seen from the data today? I'd say a couple of things, you know, based on the big data that we're looking at. If you've got soils that are, are holding a lot of water, your disease pressure is going to be higher. Um, there's We've just got very strong linkage between that. So you need to be prepared for Pythium, Rhizoc, Fusarium, SDS in those fields, you know, whether you're planting, no matter what you're planting into this year, uh, just know that those disease uh, levels are going to be high in the upcoming season. If it's dry, you're going to have probably a higher probability of gibberella stalk rot. And, you know, one of the other big learnings that we had from this year from our research was on soil health. And so, you know, I'd like to talk a few minutes about some of the things that we learned that are going to be a little bit surprising to folks, uh, you know, in the upcoming season. Yeah, absolutely. So we conducted analysis on 96 fields across the Midwest. 44 were conventional till and 52 were conservation till. So mostly no till. Uh, Some may have had cover crops. All of them were in a corn-soybean rotation. And the difference between the analysis that we're doing on soil health is, you know, versus other studies that have been done is we're really looking at a data fusion platform that consists of agronomic, so weather, planting, management, and yield, biological, which has been the missing link, which is pests, pathogens, beneficial uh, bacteria and fungus, and the community. And then finally, geochemical, so soil classification, particle size, soil drainage, elevation and slope, things of those natures. And we're looking for correlations between what is happening on each of those fields. And, you know, soil health is pretty broadly, um, you know, has a lot of definitions to a lot of different people. So the way that we think about it is scientifically. So we're looking at the presence and uh, pressure of beneficial microbes like mycorrhizal fungi that are going to promote plant growth and really high yields and, and, and those things, and then disease pressure. So what, you know, does this soil have a high disease pressure or a low disease pressure? And so why is this important? Well, there's no single analysis that takes all three of those factors into consideration today. And each one is, imp- is as important and correlative to the other. So that's why this research is going to be, that we're going to continue to do is really important and what people will find interesting in that predictive agronomy report. And just a couple of the things that we, you know, that we found is that 
contrary to popular belief, <laughs> growers who do conventional till are not doing bad things. Um, in fact, in some of those in some of those fields, their mycorrhizal fungi were actually at higher levels than in some of the you know many of the no-till or conservation till. Their CO2 burst was higher, and they had lower levels of SDS than uh, conservation-tilled fields. Now, that's not a blanket statement to say that conventional tillage is better than, you know, conservation tillage. It all depends on the field and the environment. So things like elevation and slope, you know, if you've got a probability of having a lot of soil movement and erosion, then, you know, conservation tillage obviously makes a lot of sense, right? But if you don't and your water holding capacity is very high, then there's a higher likelihood that you're going to have disease pressure in there. In fact, in those poorly drained soils, SDS pressure was 2.8 times higher than it was in non-poorly drained soils. So, we can't say in a vacuum that tillage is either good or bad. It just depends on the situation. Sometimes it's really good because it opens up oxygen into the soil, which you need to have healthy bacteria and things to promote growth within, that, uh, within those fields. So we are in the process of developing a compaction and pathogen-linked insight to help inform growers where, when and where they can optimize the adoption of alternative tillage practices. But we're taking a very science-based approach to it, looking at all three of those factors, geochemical, biological, and management practices. When you take all three of those into consideration, we can really inform on some good decisions. Yeah, and, and like you said, tillage is the result of probably multiple different factors that they have to take into account. But it sounds like here, this is information can help further solidify their decision-making process about when and where they employ, you know, tillage. Exactly. And that's that, that's the purpose behind the predictive agronomy report. It's a macro level view of our total data set that, you know, folks will have not seen this kind of data before. You know, when I was a tech service rep, again, I was conducting small level trials on replicated plots, and you might do a hundred of those across the country. We're literally looking at hundreds of thousands of acres and 200 billion data points to inform on correlations and on decision-making that, uh, that needs to occur in the upcoming season. So I'm excited about this predictive agronomy report. It's the first of its kind. It will be out at the end of January, so I hope folks will have an opportunity to look at it. But it is a much deeper look scientifically at what is happening across the Midwest and what we can expect to see in the upcoming season. Hmm. Very exciting. Yeah, I look forward to, to seeing that report come out. Anything else in 2023 that Pattern is looking forward to? Well, we're going to continue to add new pathogens into our analysis. We'll be adding some um, some other layers in there that I don't want to give away right now at this time, but uh, some exciting new stuff coming in the uh, upcoming spring season and for uh, for next fall. But I would uh, just invite folks that if you, there's still time before planting, if you want to learn what's going on in your field, if you've got a field that's underperforming, if you've got a field that's overperforming, or if you just want to know what is going on on this piece of ground that I'm getting ready to rent, you know, contact your local uh, Stein rep, contact Pattern Ag, and we'll be glad to hook you up with a dealer who can then get you into the system and, and uh, get you these insights back. They're uh, really valuable. Awesome. 
Awesome. Well, Mike, you know, I had you on in the fall and, and I know you have a great service and I was looking forward to getting some data and information back from your findings from the 2022 season. So I'm glad to have you back on the show to talk about those things. Um, appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. And if you want to learn more, just visit pattern, P-A-T-T-E-R-N dot A-G. All right. Well, that's our time for today. I'd like to thank our guests and our listeners for joining us for another episode of the Stein Seedcast. We'll be back again soon with more expert interviews and insights about all things Stein. And to never miss an episode, subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. To learn more about Stein and its elite corn and soybean genetics, visit steinseed.com. Stein has yield.